Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Luke Stutters. Hi. Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest, and that's Joel Hawksley. Hey, how's it going, guys? It's going all right. Resolve Digital helps build, optimize, and maintain e-commerce, SaaS, and other products built on Ruby on Rails. They can help build new applications from scratch, rescue projects in bad shape, provide ongoing development and maintenance for existing projects, augment your existing team with experienced Rails developers. They also specialize in Solidus and Spree Commerce solutions. Go check them out at resolve.digital. We brought you on to talk about a couple of things. One is uh, you did a rethinking the view layer with components at RailsConf last year. And it looks like you're talking about some of the same things in the, what, pre-recorded RailsConf 2020 that kind of got moved online. I don't know what to call it. Version? Couch edition. Hey, there you go. I like that. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of doing a follow-up. Last year's talk was, I think, more prototypical than it might have uh, let on. It was very theoretical and kind of experimental. This year's talk is much more practical and technical, discussing, like running this architecture in production at scale for what's now been over a year and kind of the things we've learned from it. Yeah, it makes sense. It looks like you went on the Ruby Blend and talked to them about this. So do you want to just kind of give us the five-minute version of the conversation you had over there, and then we'll try and add to the conversation instead of repeat it? Sure. So the, the kind of conversation we had, it, it covered a bunch of different topics. Uh, I can touch on a couple of them briefly. First is just the genesis of the project. So the project is really the outcome of a bunch of experiences I've had working across a bunch of different Rails code bases throughout my career. I worked at an agency when I first got started, which meant I saw a lot of different Rails code bases very quickly. Our agency specialized in rescues, is what we called them, which is basically taking code bases that had gone off the Rails and kind of brought them back to a place where they were a little bit easier to work with. Was that because you just added lots of rescue Neil everywhere? <laughs> no, no. It was. It, it really depended on the project, but I think that ultimately what we had is that because we were a consultancy and we had done a lot of these rescues, we had a better picture of what Rails could look like at these larger scales. So when, say, a startup grew from like nothing to being a 50-engineer company, they might have taken some wrong turns. And since we had seen a lot of those wrong turns happened and helped fix them, we could drop into a rail shop and say, okay, when you're at this scale, these are the kinds of things that we've seen make sense for other customers. And as a new programmer, that was incredibly valuable, as you can imagine, because I got to learn from people who were got a lot of experience around, I wouldn't say best practices, but like they had a lot of good real-life examples of ways things work and don't work in the Rails ecosystem. And that was kind of like this jumping-off point for me when it comes to this project. That was... I mean, that was now seven years ago when I had that job. But I really, when I think about this project, think about it starting from there. Because that was the first place that I learned about what I would call alternative visions for the view layer in the Rails architecture. At that job, I learned about decorators and presenters, which are kind of like the two, you know, at one of the two basic general architectural avenues you can take in Rails that deviate from what Rails gives you for views. And I then worked at a couple other Rails shops and saw like more specific in-depth manifestations of those patterns. One example of them that really stuck out to me was a company that was using the React Rails gem. And we had some really dynamic pieces of the app that obviously needed React. But that abstraction kind of trickled, started to trickle back into the static view layer in a way that was really curious to me. And that we were using 
this fairly complex abstraction layer to use React to render static content, which really kind of blew my mind when I saw that in practice, when I saw people committing code that was like, literally build this button with this component, render it once and nothing changes. But the reason we were doing that in that case was because those components that we had had a lot of variations in behavior. And because they were React, we could run unit tests against them. And that was a real eye-opener for me because for me, it, it really drove home like a really concrete example of where Rails wasn't meeting our needs in a way that I felt was like not at all unique to our company at all. Like we were an ed tech company. Nothing, nothing was remotely you know, special technically about what we were doing, especially in this case. And I kind of saw this over and over and over again with these different Rails view abstractions that kind of handled these idiosyncrasies that you start to see as your app gets more complex and your team gets bigger. So this view component project that I'm working on is ultimately an expression of my experience across all of those situations into an architecture that I believe is quite compatible with the Rails paradigm in a way that kind of incorporates the lessons I think we've learned across a bunch of these other abstractions. So that was kind of the genesis of it. And then the other major thing we talked about on the podcast um, on Ruby Blend recently was the role of open source and how it's been a real driver of this library in a way that I never expected. Like we extracted the library from the GitHub monolith last August. Yeah, it was August. And since then, I think we're pushing mid, it's like 45 releases since August. And that's, I think, pretty significant. I had actually never done any open source before this project. This is my first time ever doing it. So doing an open source project at GitHub, the open source company, and having it be this successful has been immensely rewarding. And the gist of what I talked about this specifically on the Ruby blend was how really it's been kind of utopian in a way, our experience, because we've seen things we wanted to build be built better because we built them in the open. One example would be we recently built collection support, uh, support for rendering like a like an enumerable uh, into a series of components that rendered like in parallel. And someone had we, we had filed an issue for this. People had commented on it. Someone from GitHub, my colleague Tim, went in, went out and tried to build it. Came up with an API he liked, and then he opened up a pull request and got a ton of feedback from the community that very legitimately made it better made it better than I think we would have gotten internally. And we have a lot of talented engineers here because we got feedback from people outside the company with different experiences, working in different code bases. And we've seen this happen over and over again on this project where the design of the APIs and even of the implementation has been dramatically improved by it being open. I don't know if this is typical of open source projects or not, but I'm certainly very happy that it's gone in this direction. So that kind of covers I, I, the, the, the scope of what I talked about in the podcast. Yeah, that makes sense. As far as your experience and whether or not it's typical, it seems to be more typical for libraries that have enough of a following and also are adding things that don't already exist out there. Because a lot of times what happens is is you'll get the feedback that it needs to look more like the other thing that does the same thing. <laughs> and so if it, you're, I think you're in that sweet spot for that. Sure. And, um, you know, I, I will say I should own up very publicly. I think this is about as public, publicly as you can own up to something that... I don't consider what we're doing with this library to be novel. There are many libraries that have come before it that we draw heavy inspiration from. Mm -hmm. Really, the closest one is Cells from Trailblazer. Really cool library. And we wanted basically to get a lot of the benefits that we saw with the Cells architecture in something that was closer and more palatable in the like existing, what I would call like Rails conventions slash paradigms. 
And yeah. I think that <laughs> I'm actually surprised we haven't gotten more comments along the lines of like, why don't we do this thing sales does? Or why don't we do this thing, you know, Draper does or something like that? You know, I've seen this kind of implementation done in other frameworks, you know, so specifically .NET, and it's a mess. Like the way that I've seen them implemented and done, it is so obscure that you can't trace it back to the original component. So one time I spent, I think it was about 12 to 14 hours just creating one little dropdown using their components because that component, just a simple dropdown, was layered under 12 different components. So it was insane. And it took me forever to just figure out how to create a silly dropdown. So having played around with the view component a bit, I really like the implementation. It's very readable. It's very clear. So if you have any kind of experience with React or any other kind of component-based framework, you can pick this up right off the bat and be even more productive, even quicker, because it's in a familiar syntax. It's in a familiar philosophy that you already use on your Rails applications. So definitely kudos to your work on that. For sure. And I I think that that touches on a really important point we've seen building this project that has kind of felt almost like a cheat, which is that since we are what I would call late to the game when it comes to component architectures, we've kind of gotten to sit behind all the bike sheds that have happened for the past, what, six years on React. Mm -hmm. And now not all of them have translated perfectly, but the most of them have. And if nothing else, when we have an architectural question, Every single time in our experience, there has been a React parallel where we've been able to go out and read all of the like Medium posts people have written about that problem. And it's been hugely beneficial. We've saved, I think, a lot of time. And you're seeing that in practice, as you said, in the library, where because we're able to like stand on the shoulder, those conceptual shoulders from a different paradigm, if you're coming from those other component architectures, things are very familiar and should be kind of just, you know, replaceable. Okay, can I... Can I wind us back just for a second? Because, yeah, I mean, I saw this. I, I'll admit, I have been so slammed with putting together conferences for, for Rails, for JavaScript, for React Native, you know, all the other stuff I have going on. I didn't get a chance to watch your talk. Mm-hmm. And I haven't, I haven't had a chance to play with this library. And so when I saw this and I saw view layer with components, that's where my brain went, right, was React. In fact, I just got done recording React Roundup. So, <laughs> you know, I'm looking at this and I'm going, okay, this this conversation belongs on the other show. So what what exactly are we talking about? Like what are you giving people with this approach or this library to be able to build their views with components? Because yeah, I'm thinking React and it sounds like the ideas are pretty similar. Sure. So I can give you kind of the elevator pitch of what this library yeah. offers. So view component is a base class that you inherit from and you define subclasses of it. Those subclasses are objects that can be passed into the render call in Rails. This is enabled by a patch that is coming in Rails 6.1, hence great timing on this podcast, because 6.1 is on the horizon. So those objects, fundamentally, the biggest difference with these objects compared to rendering anything else in Rails is that Rails templates are all compiled into methods on the same context, which means that they all exist in the same state. And because they're compiled into methods, you can't test them directly. So what that means is that view components give you encapsulation. They give you that Ruby object you can interact with that can define methods that are only accessible within the object and give you all the niceties of really just working in Ruby. 
And I think that that's the big paradigm shift that a lot of people see when they use this library. So they say, hey, that Ruby thing that I really like doing, I can just do that in views. And you really couldn't do that before, except you know, by adding like giant blocks at the top of your ERB templates. So I think that that's kind of the elevator pitch is that it brings Ruby to the view layer. Nice. Okay, that makes me happy. Yeah. So has anyone tried pairing view components with stimulus to they give have. it a more reactive feel? They have. So I think that I'm really, I will say that I'm really cautious of providing too much guidance on things that I haven't personally done or that we don't do at GitHub. And we do not use stimulus at GitHub and I have not used stimulus. I can, do, I can tell you that there are people in the community that are working on finding nice ways to have this framework work well with stimulus. There's a small experimental note in the readme that I can actually tell you what it says, but it has some example code on how you can kind of get things wired up. And people seem to be optimistic that it is a nice pairing. So are you using this at GitHub? <laughs> oh, we are, we are, we are using it. Okay. So, so I guess this is probably a good time to talk about what my actual job is. So I'm an engineer on our design systems team. And the design systems team owns basically the UI frameworks that are used across the entire company. So we provide the primer design system that is kind of like you could think of it as our version of Bootstrap, but we have it implemented in React. We have it implemented in just like a pure CSS implementation. And now we're working on building it in this view component implementation as well. So on a grander scale, though, my ultimate responsibility for the company is helping us wrangle 4,400 view files that are 12 years old at the most. So we have this incredibly large monolithic application that is very well maintained, but we need to be able to remain nimble and not make mistakes as we as it continues to grow in size. That number was for views was 4,000 a year ago, which means that we got it like four or 500 views-ish in the past year. So that's the size of most Rails applications. Like actually, I shouldn't even say most, that's a large Rails application. And we've just added that in the past year to ours. So at that rate of growth, we need to have a lot of tools and paradigms and abstractions that can enable people to build their build out their new features without necessarily having a designer sitting over their shoulder the whole time, without having an accessibility expert sitting over their sh- shoulder the whole time. The component abstraction, that is like the way we view forward to solving that problem is providing these really nice building blocks that can be reused across the site. Yeah, that many view files, especially some of them being 12 years old. Yep. I, I mean, what other kinds of pain do you like? Uh, <laughs> I mean, it just, it, it sounds so daunting. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm imagining though that there's more to it than just this one approach that makes this easier. So, so how does this fit into your overall strategy? So yeah, there, I mean, you're right that this is just a piece of the strategy. What is really, I think, just amazing about what I get to do is I kind of, I view my role at the company kind of through three different time horizons. One is what can I do this week to make the team productive that I'm on? One is what can I do to make engineers at the company productive? And then the third one, the most important one is what can I do to make Rails better so that people working on view, the view layer can be more productive? And generally, when we're looking at problems, we have so much evidence that we try and approach them from that third level to start. So we want to say like, okay, we have this problem. We have a mountain of evidence that can guide us towards what, how we think Rails might need to change to make this specific issue easier to deal with. And I can give you a concrete example of how else this is manifesting itself outside of view components. I recently landed a patch in Rails. Let me take a step back and I'll describe the problem. So the problem is, 
when you're working on our application in your local development environment and you just load a page, you're clicking around the app and you see a part of the page, knowing where that part of the page came from in your views directory is very difficult. This is a problem that didn't exist 10 years ago when no one was using design systems and you didn't have this like functional CSS in your DOM everywhere and you had like unique class names. You could just copy the class name, do a grep in your code base and you'd, you'd find the template that was rendering it. But in our code base, we have almost no unique class names, which means that it's really difficult to trace from like looking at a page back to a template file. So the patch we landed in Rails is an action view config toggle you can turn on that for ERB compiled templates, it adds an HTML comment before and after each template. So when you're loading the page, you see begin app layouts html.slim. And then at the very, or ERB. And at the bottom, you'd see end app layouts application.html.erb. And you see that for every single template all the way down, which means that when you're inspecting the output of your uh, HTML, you can see exactly where it came from. So that's one example of developer ergonomics in the space that I'm working on. The other one that I'm starting to look at is the opposite direction, which is saying, if I'm looking at a template in my Rails app, what routes render that template? And that's also a really fun one. We actually have the pieces to make it happen. I just need to get around to it. So it kind of gives you a complete list of all the routes that touch that. Yeah, and I will note that this is enabled by a very specific linter we use. for. We use this linter for a couple different reasons, but... For every render call in our Rails application, you're required to pass the fully qualified path for the template, which means that when you are looking at a template and it calls render, there's, there's no ambiguity on what's being rendered. You don't say like render colon, you know, simple show. You do render repositories forward slash show. That's valid. And we do that with the Rubicop. And then we have a layer that goes through and literally looks at every single render call and makes sure that that actually maps to a template. And if it doesn't, it actually raises an error and tells you that you have an unused template in your system. This, of course, means that we're not using implicit renders in our controllers either. If people are curious about that linter, it is, I think it might be part of our Rubocop GitHub open source project. I'd have to check, but I think it's in there. It's called Implicit Render, I think is the name of the cop. And what was the name of a feature that shows you where your components are coming from and adds the comments? Oh, the that feature is, uh, I think it's, Action view dot annotate template file names. If you want me to follow up later, I can provide a link to the uh, Rails PR in the show notes. It will be a part of six one. Yeah, that would be helpful. So let's let's roll back over to the view component stuff for a minute. If I wanted to pull this in, let's say that I have a Rails six app and I want to start using this library. I mean, do I just? It, it sounded like I just uh, include the gem and then in my gem file and then inherit from the class. I mean, is that all there is to it? Yeah, you, I think you have to require something in your, in your initializers or something. And then I think there's a test helper you can pull in if you want to that makes testing a little easier. That's about it. Yeah, and, and generally we recommend people pulling it in to find their most used partial mm-hmm. and replace that with a component. That's generally the place where you see the most benefit from this architecture because if you think about it, like a, a partial, since it's a view, can't be tested directly. Which means that if there's any amount of like branching logic in that partial and it's reused, say across, just say for this example, a dozen views, if you want to test that thoroughly, you need to test it for every controller route that renders that partial. So if you refactor it to component, you can move that test coverage into the component unit test and then just leave your controller test to be the happy path. And a lot of people see a huge benefit from that. Uh, in our code base, you're looking at like two orders of magnitude in terms of test speed in between controller tests and component unit tests. 
That makes sense. I'm trying to imagine then what, what the view controller actually looks like. You mean the view component? Or the view component, yeah. Sure. So a view component is a Ruby object, and it has a template that sits right alongside it with the exact same base name. So you can think of it as just different extension. Uh, you have an RB file, and then we actually support the rail. We hook into the Rails template handler. So if you have a, you can use Slim if you want. You can use Haml. You can use, I think it generally should be compatible with any of the HTML templating languages. So you basically take your partial, turn it into your components template file. So you'd have like mycomponent.html.erb, and then you'd have mycomponent.rb sitting next to it. And then that, that Ruby file will have a, an initializer. And that initializer takes any arguments you might have passed to your partial, say, as locals. And then in your initializer, you might assign those arguments out to instance variables. What's happening under the hood is that we are taking that template and we are using the existing template handler's code that compiles that template down to Ruby. That's what Rails does under the hood with every template, just compiles it into a method that's Ruby. So we're using that same compilation stack, exactly, except we're attaching that generated method onto that Ruby object. We do that at runtime in development, but in production, we actually do that compilation step at application boot, which has some nice performance benefits. But I, I mentioned that to say that like, ultimately, the template just exists as an instance method on the object, which means it can reference those IVARs that you set in your initializer. You can also use adder readers. Some people like the semantics of them better. We go either way in our code base. So how far down the rabbit hole do you go then? I mean, you start doing this with partials, right? And I, I like that example because, yeah, there really isn't a good way to reach into them. But if you've got this Ruby class around it, um, you've got an object you can go and manipulate, then you can really get a feel for what's going on with it. How far down the rabbit hole do you go before you start seeing diminishing returns? I think you start seeing different returns. And they definitely are diminishing as well. I think diminishing is maybe a little bit of a pessimistic perspective on it, but it definitely is true. This is why I try and give the example of like a heavily used partial first, because I think that's the way people should think about this architecture. That being said, we do have components rendered directly from controllers in our application. Because even at the level of a component that's only used once, that is literally just a Ruby version of what would have been a view, you still see benefits really on the testing side of things. Because your cost of of adding an additional test is so low, you generally see these things be better tested in our experience. I think that like there's a very, very real like visceral aversion to thoroughness when it comes to testing, like say controller tests, let alone like you know browser tests. So the fact that component tests are cheap, but you can still make DOM assertions in them, I think is a new paradigm for a lot of people that that sparks a lot of joy, that maybe inspires them to use components where the return is lower simply because they can write these better tests. And so the RailsConf video that you did back in 2019, last year, what has changed with the view component since then? Oh, gosh. Like everything. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean I'm going to be honest. That was the first, so that was the first time I'd like really ever spoken at a conference, ever. And that was the first time I'd ever written, really written a talk. And it was... <sighs> It was honestly just like phenomenally frightening because I work for like we're a big name in the in the space, right? GitHub is huge. We're one of the biggest Rails code bases. And it was really like we were put I was really putting myself out there sharing that code in the state it was in. And then we and then we thought it would be a good idea to go and try and put it in Rails like almost immediately after that. Those things turned out generally to be a mistake. The library wasn't mature at that point. And I think that I probably could have been more clear about that, that we had been running it. Yeah, we'd been running it in production in kind of an experimental fashion for a couple of months, but 
proposing something should go on Rails like six months after you like literally made the first Ruby file of the subtraction is probably a little aggressive. So in short, almost everything has changed since RailsConf. We went through two or three different syntaxes. We went down a rabbit hole where we supported like five or I think it was like five different ways of we monkey patched the the Rails render method from ActionView five different ways to support all these different syntaxes you might expect Rails to support. And it was it's kind of been like a like a trial by fire for this library where we've really put it through the ringer and it's gone into a lot of people's code bases and people have come back and reported sometimes pretty gnarly bugs that actually made us change the architecture or simplify the architecture a little bit. That is to say, we changed some of the APIs, changed some of the approaches, and ended up deprecating a lot of functionality in the gem. So we just hit version two. Oh gosh, I think it was sometime in March, a month or two ago now. And that version two is in the end quite pared down from what the library looked like, at least from an API perspective, you know, six months ago. And it's been, you know, there have been a lot of lessons along the way. The, main, the, the first one, first and foremost, though, has been that Assemver is a really powerful thing for experimentation. Like we followed it pretty well. And it's enabled us to say, hey, you know, we're, we're going to make a lot of releases that have all these changes in them. And if you don't like them, like we're making small releases, which means you can skip a release and you can file an issue and we'll fix it in the next one. And that's enabled us to make this forward progress that I think might not have been as fast if we had been more careful about like whether a decision was good or not. Because I think that ultimately we've been learning that until you put this thing into a couple people's code bases, a decision doesn't really earn its merit until you, you know, until you do that. Cool. Yeah, I checked it out last year, but I'll definitely have to come back and look at some of the things that you guys have done since then. For sure. I'm really hoping that we can start to share more of what our components look like internally. I think that's kind of a big gap at this point is actually just having good examples. You know, it's also like part of reason part of the reason why I'm here talking with y'all about this because I think that we need to talk about it to understand even how to talk about it. Like we need to know how this fits into the paradigm, into the conventions. And I'm hoping that I, we're definitely much further along there than we were last year. And I think that's ultimately the more important thing than even the library itself is understanding where its value is and how to communicate that value and how to fit it into like an existing Rails code base. Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv slash job book. That's devchat.tv slash job book. I got a question about the creative vision behind the view component. So one of the things you talked about, talked about before is what Rails front-end code should be like in terms of <laughs> testing. You know, can you test it quickly? Is it encapsulated? What is your creative vision for what front-end code in a Rails project should look like? It's funny you, you asked that question because that's, that's literally the question my uh, wonderful manager, Diana, asked me about a month ago. And more of a way to point out that at a company our size, we don't have like a cohesive answer to that. And I think that that's ultimately where my job long-term at GitHub remains secure, <laughs> is finding an answer to that. 
And I think that for my role, the team I'm on is more concerned with design. But as we know, building UI is like design is part of the equation, but it's not all of it. It's also behavior. And we so we have another team called Web Systems that handles JavaScript and accessibility concerns. And really, I, I, I mean, your personal opinion. Oh, personal if, opinions. If, if you were the boss. Okay, you know, if I were the boss. On a less corporate level, <laughs> but on a more kind of passion project, here's what I believe you should look like. Oh, I can tell you a couple of strong opinions that I would like that, that are currently held. One is that we should be removing all statefulness from views, which is to say coupling to a global state. That would, in this case, be coupling to any sort of database query. So we should be removing any possibility of queries executing in the view. And that's something that we're, I'm actually actively working on right now. I have a PR I'm fighting, which is we have, a, we have an internal tool called MySQL Instrumenter, which allows you to inspect the queries that are going to MySQL as you run Ruby code. And I'm writing a, a wrapper for our render helper for components that will automatically fail your test if you run any if any if anything goes to my sql while you render a component and then it will and it will dump what queries actually ran that you didn't expect and then you can whitelist queries if you are saying hey you know what for now this is something that i need to do because of reasons or whatever so that's one very strong opinion i think that more broadly there's a there's kind of like a philosophical problem with design systems that i think manifest itself in our code base especially, which is that a design system isn't just CSS class names. It's often DOM structure. It's often rules around accessibility. And the list kind of goes on in terms of what is manifest in like the intentions of a design system. And I think that the fundamental architectural weakness that I'm going up against is that we've traditionally expressed design systems in terms of CSS class names. And we need to right. find, we're, we're basically searching for an abstraction that is better than CSS class names to better encapsulate the intention of the design system, which is to provide reusable pieces of UI that are consistent and well-tested and accessible and all of these things. You could see view component as kind of like my like very aggressive way of inserting those ideals into our code base, because when you do have this abstraction, you can do those things like making sure that there are no database queries running or, you know, you can test for certain accessibility things and viewing it as a way in to be able to do like some certain like static analysis things is like a big part of that kind of personal creative vision for sure. It's not just because you don't like JavaScript. <laughs> the, uh, I'm joking, of course, but I, I mean, I've... you can plant that seed, but you can plant that flame because let's, let's go down there real quick. Let's talk about why, let's talk about why this is, why I'm not building that, like why I'm just not off building. Yeah, why not react? Yeah. Sure. Great. Let's go there. I love this road. <laughs> <laughs> so, so well, we were talking about HTML renderers before, and on Dave's behalf, I almost said, "What about JSX?" I mean, you know, I mean, we've we've talked about building some sort of variant, but so there's a so first and foremost, the reason we don't use like a lot of JavaScript to GitHub is history. We haven't, so we don't. Which is to say that, like, oh, it's yeah. a burn. Burn yeah. JavaScript. <laughs> we have a lot of we have a lot of problems that have already been solved with minimal JavaScript or sprinkles of JavaScript. Like our our JavaScript team is lovely. They, they do a lot of work in web components, really simple things that you just tack onto the HTML, which for I don't know how true this is anymore, but for the longest time we had like a pseudo rule at the company, which is that 
you should be able to turn off JavaScript and still use the application in like a meaningful way. You may not be able to do everything like the fastest way, but you should still be able to use it. And there's a lot of arguments for this. It's kind of like the progressive enhancement like mindset on the world. But one that's really resonated with me recently is, so like we're dealing with this whole pandemic thing, right? And like a lot of people are working from home or kids are not in school. They're at home. They're on their phones. They're, you know, for a good chunk of the American public, a lot of kids are working on worse internet connections than they had at school. And if you look at some of the parallel implementations we even have internally of things React versus server rendered, the ability for us to do the heavy lifting on the server is incredibly beneficial for our for our customers that are at, in the worst situations. So like if you're in Africa working on a cell phone connection that's fairly weak, every byte matters and sending down a giant JavaScript bundle can be really expensive. A flip side, another aspect of that is computing power. I think that we are especially guilty as web developers as forgetting that our iPhones and MacBook Pros are incredible at running JavaScript, but a good portion, if not a majority of the devices that end up running our JavaScript are orders of magnitude worse when it comes to performance, when it comes to running that code. Um, this is especially true on mobile. Like I just saw something the other day that the iPhone SE, the one that just came out, is as performant as the top of the line Android phone you can buy right now when it comes to running JavaScript. So if you're building for like the, the bottom of the line Apple phone, you're building for the top of the line Android phone, which makes me think that like we are not thinking about that problem enough when it comes to like the actual experience we're serving our, our, to our users. I'm all for so writing a, less JavaScript. So I say I'm thinking about <laughs> it pretty well. I also should note that like you can kind of guess that like GitHub is a, has a good amount of market share in like in the developed world, in the first world. A lot of growth in the technology industry is in the third world, which means we need to be thinking about making our technological decisions for people that are much less like us working on devices that are much less like ours. And I think that that's kind of a fundamental shift that we're even struggling with at the company is that, you know, when I came to GitHub, someone said the best and worst part about working in GitHub is that we're cooking for chefs, which is to say that like, we are building for our own kind. So we really like, if, if, if you think, if you're as a GitHub engineer, if you think something is useful, you should probably just build it because you're an engineer, you're using GitHub, you know, it probably makes sense for the product. That becomes less true as our product is used by more people outside of the areas where we have employees. So it's something we really need to think about as like, the internet grows as a, as a platform for us to build things that like our intuitions are probably less relevant as time goes on. Yeah. You know, I, I do honestly share a lot of those same sentiments, even back to the styling and the frameworks that we choose with styling specifically. I remember creating applications where I needed to just tweak a certain view a little bit. So I would just litter my views with custom CSS names all over the application. And I ended up with this huge single page CSS file with nothing but just little tiny overwrites, a lot of duplicates too. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of reusing the exact same styles, but just with a different class name. And so having a consistency across the board is so important for the maintainability of an application. Mm. It might complicate things a little bit more because you bring someone in from the outside who's not very familiar with view components, and then you see this render a new instance of a Ruby object. It's like, okay, what the heck's that? But 
any kind of intelligent editor, you'll be able to jump to its definition and see what's going on. You know, if you have a couple of view components layered deep, you're going to be able to trace it back. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important for bringing on not only new developers, but working on new features or maintaining existing ones is to one, have that traceability, which is why I love your template annotations model of putting it into the views. I can't think of how many times that would have saved me just <laughs> working on other people's applications. Like, where is this coming from? I have no idea. It doesn't exist. So I think that would have been like super helpful. It might still actually be super helpful. So yeah, I'm right along there with you on a lot of those sentiments. For sure. And I think that th- there's like a overriding, overarching sentiment for a lot of this, which is that I think a lot of us have gone running from the, ra- the things Rails provides us to build our views for greener pastures. And that's certainly one way to improve your, to improve your situation, right? Is to pick up a new tool. But I think that well, first of all, that's not an option we really have. We have 4,400 views. Like, we're not going to just go rewrite those in React. It's just not going to happen. But I think that fundamentally, we need to think about ways we can not run away from these problems as much as we might have in the past. Because the, the, like, if you're having the problem, someone else has probably had it 100 times over. And I think that running to like React is where you basically throw out a lot of the things Rails gives you versus something, I would argue, very incremental like view component you really just like, you kind of take a lot, you take, kind of take two steps back in a lot of ways to go one step forward in a specific way. Yeah, absolutely agree there. So how many developers do you guys have working on GitHub? We had last year for a monolith, we had 800 people write commits. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so does view components add a flexibility to sustain more developers or does it add its own complications? I mean, I don't think that there... I, I would want to know what metrics you'd use to measure that. I think that, conflicts. if <laughs> merged, <laughs> I think that I think that if you look at it as number of views written per year versus number of designers hired per year or design engineers hired per year, year that'd be one way to look at it. Like, do we need to grow our design team linearly with this growth of the rest of the company or are we able to have more leverage? That's kind of like the, the golden goal of this project is to allow like like honestly our our design is hopefully very consistent i i think it's pretty consistent overall for an application and the goal is that we can enable that without having to have you know people running around being basically playing a design cop on on pull requests i've got a specific question on one of the features which is on the readme on the you Component project and that is about content areas sure now, you have said that it, when someone, can't remember the name, contributed the content areas feature to view yeah. components, this very much changed what you could and couldn't do with view components and your perspective on it. Sure. I think that, first of all, to give credit where credit is due, it was contributed by John Palmer. He works in Boston, Massachusetts. Content areas, basically what that said was, before this feature, when you rendered a component, you could pass a block to it. And that block could then be injected somewhere in the component template. So you could say, for example, have like a, a badge and you might pass in like the actual content of that badge or something like that. And that would be passed in as a block and then you'd render it inside the component. With content areas feature enabled was passing multiple blocks to 
a component, which let you say, for example, the, the example I love to give that's really simple is like a card component that might have like a header, body, and footer. You could pass in the content for each one of them as three named blocks to that component. And then the, temp- and then the component template can render them exactly as like your design system says it should. That really kind of, the thing that that made me realize was how powerful of an abstraction we had unlocked. Because it took something that was like a fairly complex feature of Ruby and used it to deliver real value in our framework. And what it made me realize is that kind of as I touched on earlier, the true value of the view component framework is that you're working in Ruby. And I think that the potential of that fact alone is the leverage that the library brings to Rails.